Uh, right, people, we shall, in effect, have the devotional at the end um, today. Um, what I, so I'll talk about what is a prophet and then about Haggai and Zechariah, and we'll do that in the first half. Um, and then in the second half, uh, I'll deal with um, some of the questions that you posed to me. Um, and um, by nine, at least by nine, t- and in the middle of that, we'll have a time when you can share with one another your, the things that have come home to you uh, individually. Then in the last ten minutes, uh, we'll um, let the people for whom this is their last class at Fuller uh, say a word or two um, and uh, pray for them. Um, so I'll just begin by asking for God's presence with us this evening. Father, once again, we thank you for the privilege of being able to think about the scriptures together and pray for your illumination this last evening as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what is a prophet then and now? Page 147. Um, During the quarter, once or twice, I think, people have asked me in their postings to tell me in a sentence, to tell them in a sentence, define what is a prophet In a sentence. It can't be done. Uh, Any description of prophecy that's got any bite uh, won't turn out to apply to all of them, let alone to prophets in the New Testament. Uh, If you do find a definition that applies to all prophets, then it's so kind of vague that it doesn't do you any good. But one of the things that then leads you into is that sometimes when you want to define something um, and you have a hard time like that, uh, there's a strategy that was defined by Ludwig Wittgenstein um, who called, who referred to the notion of family resemblances. Um, a family may well have a characteristic profile, a shape of nose, chin, a uh, shape of body, certain level of intelligence, a way of walking and thinking, a strength in certain emotions, weakness in others. And not every member of the family will have all those characteristics, but to qualify as a, uh, somebody who shares the family resemblance, then um, you'll uh, have most of them. Um, And I want to suggest that the idea of prophecy, of being a prophet, uh, is a bit like that. Uh, I want to talk about uh, about nine um, facets of being a prophet. Um, uh, Individual prophets may well lack several of these without that imperiling their being identified as prophets. Uh, Indeed, perhaps perhaps no prophets have all of them. Features of character or ministry that appear in only one or two prophets may not be indications of the character of prophecy itself then, but just um, be tied up with those particular individuals or the context or what God is doing through them. Another way to make the point would be to say that, um, to ask how prophets differ from other people through whom God speaks and God acts. So there are the judges and the kings and the priests and the the wise teachers uh, in Proverbs. Um, And in the New Testament there are prophets and teachers and pastors and apostles and evangelists. Um, and uh, the question of what's the, you could ask about a family profile for each of those. What I want to do then is to, uh, I'm going to give you these nine points that seem to me to emerge from thinking about the prophets as a whole. Uh, I'm making the assumption uh, that you might reasonably expect prophetic ministry to be exercised in the contemporary church. I assume that there's no basis for the claim that the exercise of prophetic ministry was confined to the biblical period. Indeed, it looks as if it's in conflict with that promise in Joel uh, that the exercise of prophecy 
will be a feature of the full life that God intends for the chosen people. But maybe the fact that it comes and goes, that sometimes there seem to be prophets and sometimes they don't, is part, is yet another aspect of the, no but not yet! Uh, you would expect um, prophecy to be a characteristic of the, of the end with a big E, uh, and sometimes it's thus characteristic of the now, but sometimes it isn't. So, first, a prophet is somebody who shares God's nightmares and dreams. Um, the, the very beginning of the book of Isaiah uh, describes what's to follow in the book of Isaiah as a vision. And one of the words for a prophet we've seen is a seer. Strictly speaking, there are two words, uh, Jose and Roe. Um, Both of them are participles from verbs that mean to see. So the English word seer is not far um, from the nature of that Hebrew word. Prophets are people who can see things that other people can't see. And that may be, I suggested to you when we looked at um, Elijah and Elisha and whatnot, maybe uh, seeing the present world, but the world that the rest of people can't see, like the um, chariots of horsemen and fire that Elisha uh, prays that his um, servant may be able to see. Or it may be uh, a, that they are able to see things which will be visible but aren't visible at the moment because they belong to the future. Prophets are people who are able to see things. Sometimes it may be the other way around in a way. The prophets themselves often talk um, uh, as if the... Uh, well, for instance, the background of, of Amos's ministry is that he has, sat, he has seen nightmare visions of what God is going to do. He somehow knew that the day of Yahweh was going to happen and that it wasn't good news, as people thought. And Yahweh had shared that with him. The question he then had to handle is why that was so and what were its implications. The beginning of Isaiah's ministry is a nightmare vision in which the Holy One commissions him to stop up people's eyes and ears so that they can't see or hear because God intends to bring terrible calamity on them. And again, then he has to handle the question... Why was that so? What were his implications? The prophets had nightmares that they shared with people. Fortunately for us, they also had dreams that they shared with people. Um, and in a way, when I've talked about that, um, those promises that do receive their partial fulfilments, I'm talking about God's dream. God has a dream of what, what is going to be accomplished uh, for Israel. The most, most basic dream in the prophets, though, is that the uh, decimation of the people of God that's going to come about as God punishes it um, is, uh, is, is not the end of the story. It's not the last word. So at the end of Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6 declares, the holy seed is its stump. Humanly speaking, a tree that's been felled and burnt can hardly grow again. But the destiny of God's tree isn't limited by the regular rules of nature. Several of you wondered about the branch in Zechariah and wondered how that's, whether that, is that the same branch as in Isaiah? And the answer is yes. It's a kind of interesting irony here that we have a technical term for the Messiah. It's the word Messiah. They didn't have the word Messiah as a technical term for the word Messiah. As near as they got to a technical term for the Messiah is branch, which you see recurring, you see, in Isaiah and in Zechariah. Um, Isaiah, though, uses it not just as a term for 
the tree of David cut down, but also as a term for the tree of Israel cut down in chapter 6, and declares that that won't be the end of the story. There can still be new growth. The prophets then were people who looked, the, the prophets were people who looked at the present in the light of the past and in the light of the future. They looked at the present in the light of the past and in the light of the future. And they also looked at the future in the light of the present. They called Israel to live in the present and in the light of the future. They knew that God could envisage a nightmare future, but also they knew that God had a dream vision for the future. Talking about dream visions, somebody wanted to know why we haven't looked at Daniel. Um, And the answer is, Daniel isn't a prophet. Of course Daniel's a prophet! Well, not according to the Old Testament, and not according to Daniel himself, he isn't a prophet. He's a wise man. Uh, And so he comes amongst the writings, not amongst the prophets. So if you want want to um, know about Daniel, same place, same time, full quarter. The prophets then pictured uh, the dream future in light of the past. What God had done before gave God and them the ways to picture the future for the people. Every element in Ezekiel's systematic um, portrayal of God's vision for the people in the second half of the book of Ezekiel involves nothing more, but also nothing less, than this divinely inspired IMAX reworking of the key promises and the key gifts that God had given the people before. So if there are prophets today, what they will do is share with us God's nightmares and God's dreams for us. They will frighten us with their insights into the terrible disaster that hangs over the people of God. Though if they have to do that, they will also encourage us with God's vision for the possibility of our escaping danger, escaping calamity or finding new life the other side of disaster. If we live with the aftermath of calamity, as the church does in Europe, then they will thrill us with with their insight into God's dreams for us. But as they do that, their encouragement will come in the context of affirming that the calamity had to happen, and that it was deserved, and it needs to be faced. Second, a prophet speaks like like a poet and behaves like an actor. As God's nightmares and God's dreams, the visions need to be taken with absolute seriousness and yet not as direct, literal portrayals of reality. To put it another way, the the, the prophets were poets. Some parts of their books um, are prose sermons. But for the most part, their prophecies take the form of lines of poetry. They have, I've tried to show you, the characteristic features um, of Hebrew verse, such as parallelism. They're just like the Psalms. They're full of imagery and symbolism, like the Psalms. They're full of simile and metaphor. They're full of hyperbole, exaggeration, and rhetorical questions. They don't describe things straight in the way that, say, much of the teaching in the Pentateuch does. Their words tend to be anything but straightforward. Think again of that weird story in 1 Kings 13 about the prophet who, another prophet, succeeds in misleading. Or the one in 1 Kings 22 about the uh, bad spirits. 
Receiving a word from a prophet does not suddenly make life less complicated. It's more like listening to one of Jesus' parables. We should expect Christian prophets then to speak in pictures. Often, receiving their revelations from God will leave us initially puzzled rather than quite clear what God is saying to us. That's how it was with the parables. The prophet's picture may well require interpretation. One reason for that is that the deep truths about God can't be put in straightforward language that speaks only to the rational mind. It requires imagery that's got the capacity to reach the whole person. Another reason is that we don't want to receive God's truth. And God, in mercy, sometimes avoids speaking to us directly because that's to put us in a worse position than the one we already occupy. God speaks in pictures because we can then avoid seeing what God is saying, but also because the picture may get underneath our guard and break through our resistance. All those things that are true about speaking uh, are true about uh, the uh, acts that the prophets went in for, symbolic acts that, again, uh, would quite often puzzle you, as I imagine Ezekiel's did, which were both a means of the prophet uh, communicating, but also a means of the prophet doing something, because both the speaking and the doing put God's word into operation. So prophecy puts, will put before the church a challenge to our will and our imagination and our insight. And I put those words in that order because it's very easy for prophecy to become something um, that we think is, is simply offering information about how things are going to work out in the future. Um, first of all, it's a challenge to our will and to our imagination. Perhaps God sends us prophets today, if God does, because we can't respond to more straightforward address. And or, perhaps God doesn't send us too many prophets because we can't respond to address that isn't straightforward. Third, a prophet is somebody who confronts the confident with rebuke and the downcast with hope. Uh, the understanding of prophecy that you probably started the course with uh, is the assumption that the importance of the prophets lies in the witness they give ahead of time uh, to Jesus. They do, in a sense, give us witness of that kind, but you could read page after page of the prophets without coming across any statement that directly constitutes any witness of that kind. Somebody said in their posting that they thought we kind of avoided this question during the course. Well, I don't think I consciously avoided it, but if we'd simply been paying attention to the prophets in accordance with the balance of their own interests, we wouldn't have been paying much attention to that question of talking about the Messiah, because they don't do that much. God summoned and spoke to the prophets so that they could minister directly to the people of their day. They don't speak much of that coming Messiah person. Their focus doesn't lie on the far future. In the exercise of their ministry, they focused on speaking to their own people. They embody God's desire to speak to people about the realities and the temptations and the pressures of their day. And I suggest that the way they minister to God's people in their day is at least as significant as God's word for us as the way they talk about the future Messiah. The way they're significant for us is not for us to ask what they tell us about Jesus, because you can read the Gospels to find that out, for goodness sake. <laughs> read the prophets for what God was doing through them in their day. And then look for the kind of thing God might be doing for us in our day. They do talk about the future. 
but they do that in connection with the fact that we always need to live in the light of the future. Actually, we always do live in the light of the future, but it may be an imagined future, something we fear or something that we hope for, rather than the real future. The two halves of Ezekiel's uh, ministry provide a good example of all that. Before the fall of Jerusalem in 587, people think the future will turn out all right, and Ezekiel's task is to try to convince them that things are going to get much worse than they think. After the fall of Jerusalem, people sink into despair, and Ezekiel's task is to convince them that things are going to be much better than they believe. Ezekiel's task as a prophet was to confront the confident with bad news and the downcast with hope. The same insight emerges from the book of Isaiah as a whole, the difference between 1 to 39 and 40 to 55. When people despaired of their future because they know, uh, because they knew that God was bringing calamity upon them, had brought calamity upon them, though they didn't understand why, uh, second Isaiah told them that there were grounds for hope. Somebody asked me to explain the term Deuterizar. It's simply a kind of pseudo-Latin expression for second Isaiah. I don't know why we can't, why we can't speak English. Um, so Deuterizar equals second Isaiah. Deuterizar, for most people, I would think, who would ever use such an expression, means Isaiah 40 to 55, and then 56 to 66 is Trito Isaiah. Uh, but some people think that 40 to 66 was all written by the same guy, so Deuterizar was responsible for all of it. In the context of God um, having brought calamity upon the people, Second Isaiah told them that there was grounds for hope. Yahweh is one who knows how to say that enough is enough. When trouble comes, this doesn't mean that God has cast us off forever. God will never do that. If God sends us prophets, we should expect them to confront us in the same way. We don't need prophets to tell us what we already think. Prophets may be good news or bad news, but if it's good news, they're probably not telling the truth. A true prophet knows what time it is. Four, a prophet is someone, is someone who mostly brings uh, these messages, mostly speaks to the people of God. Prophets sometimes did speak to other nations, and they often spoke about other nations, but they more often spoke to the people of God. As the people of God, Israel and Judah were, of course, themselves nations. But the prophets were addressing them as entities to which God was committed. And they addressed them concerning their own commitment to God. And I suggest that their primary significance for us lies in the way they speak to the people of God. Now, people sometimes talk about the church having a prophetic ministry to society. I'm not sure that this emerges from the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Similarly, I suggested to you that it's common to think about the prophets as social reformers. But I'm, I'm not clear that they were that. A social reformer is somebody who's got a vision for society and also some ideas about how to implement that vision. Some practical policies that the reformer urges the community to adopt. The prophets were people who had a vision for society, but their vocation was not the developing of practical plans for reform. God's summons to them was to focus on God's vision for the society as the people of God. It was to find ways of reminding them of their vocation to image God 
so that the life of the people of God spoke to the world. And it was to find ways of bringing home to the people of God the terrible cost of failing to do that. It was to draw them to turn away from wrongdoing and other religious commitments and to turn to God. Somebody, again, in a posting asked me um, what, I thought was, what, what I thought were our idols. Um, and I think the answer is we have one idol, and that's ourselves. And the sense in which we are our idol is that we think that we can fix it. Prophets today will exercise their ministry to the church. It may be that they'll need to speak about God's expectations of the wider society or of the nations. But then there's a trap of which they need to be aware. It's possible to fulminate about society or about the nations in such a way as makes the church feel reassured and self-righteous. That's not the way the Old Testament prophets spoke uh, of the nations and spoke about the nations. Well, unless your name's Jonah. Because the story of Jonah is one that warns against that trap. Sometimes the prophets spoke of the destiny of the nations because the nations were a threat to the people of God. And there are many countries in which that's true today. Prophets will promise the people of God that the threat will not last forever. Prophets call the church to be the people of God instead of being an imitation of the world. Number five, a prophet is someone independent of the institutional pressures of church and state. In David's lifetime, the, only, the most prominent prophet is Nathan. And in effect, he was on the king's staff. Uh, so perhaps was Gad, who's the only other prophet who's actually named in David's story. That does give Nathan a chance to confront David over the Bathsheba-Uriah business. But it also makes it easy for him, for him to be the king's yes-man, as he was about the temple-building project. And you wonder whether a little bit more confrontation might have been appropriate throughout the story in 2 Samuel 13 through 1 Kings chapter 2. What the hell was Nathan doing during that story? Somebody asked why prophets were so uh, spoke, talked about um, uh, smearing dung on people's faces, as in Malachi, things like that. Um, and I think the answer is, well, the upside-down version of the answer is, uh, we are very bourgeois, and we don't look like talking like that. And I get in trouble, because I said the kind of thing I just said, because British people aren't as kind of um, uh, nice uh, in their language um, as Americans are. So when you find prophets speaking in a way that's objectionable, ask whether that's telling you something about you rather than something about the prophets, as well as something about the prophets. Not only did David apparently have his yes man uh, in that story in 1 Kings 22, a king like Ahab has got hundreds of prophetic advisers who can be relied upon to be yes men. And that's uh, a great similarity with the prophets amongst other ancient Near Eastern peoples. If you do look at the um, examples of prophecies by uh, prophets of other, in other peoples, of which there are examples in the uh, collection uh, ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, then you'll find that prophets um, are yes-men, or yes-women. 
And that links with the fact that evidently there was, in a sense, an office of a prophet that was occupied by somebody such as Nathan. And when, when Amaziah confronts Amos, Amaziah assumes that Amos occupies the office of prophet in that kind of sense. But actually, that office is not occupied by people like Elijah and, uh, and, uh, and Elisha, or by people like Amos and Jeremiah. They are not on the payroll of the people of God, in the way that priests were. God is able to take the initiative with regard to prophets. Who was king in Judah, and who were priests, was more fixed. God had taken initiative, an initiative long ago with kings and with priests, in line with the instincts of Israel itself. Make us a king like the nations. After that, God normally works, lets things work out uh, on their own in accordance with the rules of descent. But with prophets, God can take an initiative and intervene. There's no parallel set of human expectations to either to observe uh, or to break. So that's why, or that links with the fact that Israel didn't have any women priests and it didn't have uh, many women politicians, but it did have women prophets. And in the context, in context of church renewal and revival, God has often used women prophets, whether or not they were called that, uh, in churches that wouldn't recognise women priests or women pastors. Now, there's nothing wrong with being on the payroll. Paul argued that it was fine for a servant of Christ to be supported financially by the community, even if he used what you might think is a weird argument for that. That is, don't, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. But if you are on the payroll, um, it's harder for you to take a prophetic stance in relation to the community. You can't bark at the hand that feeds you without risking it cutting off your food supply. And you may have other mouths to feed than your own. To put it in modern terms, well, sometimes I say in class, it's impossible to be, impossible to be both a prophet and a pastor. And then students don't like it. <laughs> so I'll say, it instead, I'll say instead, more truly... But I do exaggerate. <laughs> but more truly, just for once, I'll say it accurately, it is virtually impossible <laughs> for a pastor to be a prophet. It's possible for a, to be a, for a prophet to be a pastor. Uh, Von Raad described Ezekiel like that. Uh, and in effect, I did that. And again, uh, some, somebody's um, posting. I love it when somebody quotes me against me and shows I've contradicted myself. Well, I hate it, but it's very clever. I admire the person. <laughs> <laughs> because I had said you can't be a prophet and a pastor and this person, excuse me, when you were talking in that sermon on Isaiah 53 you talked about that prophet as a pastor ok, they're right, I'm, I'm wrong I'm inconsistent, I contradict myself <laughs> it's virtually impossible for a prophet to be a pastor <laughs> but Ezekiel and second Isaiah managed it but they weren't on anybody's payroll as far as, as, far as we know and that's the, so so Second Isaiah, or the servant in Isaiah 53, was prophet and was pastor, but not pastor in the sense that he was um, being paid for it. He was exercising a pastoral role. Ezekiel would have been a priest if he'd not been exiled, but there was no temple to be looked after in Babylon. And there's a sad irony here. Um, that many men and women come to seminary to, to train for the church's ministry because they've, they've exercised significant uh, informal ministry in church contexts or parachurch contexts. They've been prophetic kind of figures, you could say. 
and their faithfulness and their fruitfulness in contexts like that encourages them or encourages the church to point them towards more formal ministry. But then they, you, have to face the fact that they, you, surrender the capacity to be prophetic once you get ordained and you're on the church's payroll. Well, perhaps I do exaggerate the, the, the point. But that, that's what prophets did. Perhaps you might rather say that the monumental pressures not to be prophetic um, uh, come upon a person who is the ch- on the church's payroll. And the only safe stance is therefore to assume that I can't now be prophetic. And therefore I, as the pastor, must encourage the prophetic ministry of other people who are not on the payroll and who may be able to say the confrontational things that I can't say and not least may be able to say them to me. Number six, a prophet is a scary person who mediates the activity of a a scary God. And I've talked to you about the way in which uh, the books of Kings describe prophets very often as uh, men of God, which to us suggests somebody of deep spirituality and committed prayer life and spiritual insight. And prophets were that, but that's not the connotation of the term man of God. A man of God is somebody in the books of Kings who utters words of frightening significance that can be followed by signs that are both destructive and constructive. And they are figures like that because they reflect and mediate the nature of their God. God is somebody mysterious and unpredictable and frightening, as well as consistent, reassuring and encouraging. Again, somebody in their posting said, uh, would I talk about the way that the God of Jesus and the God of the New Testament are kind of cosy and, um, I, can't, I can't remember the other word, another word, a word a bit like that. And the God of the Old Testament wasn't like that. So how could we kind of reconcile the two? I beg your pardon? It was you. Cuddly. Well, he's confessed. He said God was cuddly. <laughs> this is the, as I've said to you a number of times, this is the person who sends trillions of people to hell. Is that very cuddly? Answer, no. But is it in keeping with the Old Testament? Yeah, because there is no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's only a difference when you take selectively certain things from the Old Testament and selectively certain from the new t- things from the New Testament. Any fool could do that. <laughs> but you're not the fool I was referring to. <laughs> well, what I was saying, though, I mean, it was a but that Jesus, I, mean, I feel like Jesus is portrayed as such a cuddly figure. Well, he is portrayed, uh, not by the Gospels, by us, you mean? Yeah. You why mean by not? the Gospels? No, no. Jesus is a guy who goes around being rude and threatening people, saying you're going to go to hell. And he doesn't say, I'm really sorry you're going to go to hell. He just says you're going to hell. Okay, you don't, don't, okay if you don't forgive people, then you're not going to be forgiven. On that day, there will be lots of people who prophesied in my name, he says, and I shall say to them, I never knew you. He's a nasty guy. <laughs> He's definitely not cuddly. Uh, no, I'm not going to take questions. Sorry. Uh, at the end. Later on I will. I only, le- I only let him off because I've been rude to him. <laughs> <laughs> There's David, who is the man after God's own heart, whatever that means, who experiences God being full of grace and commitment. I mean, I know what it means, but you think it means something different. That's okay. I can live with that. He experiences um, God's grace and commitment. Um, but he also experiences God offering him the choice of famine, defeat or plague through a different prophet. The toughness of God and prophet in these stories 
reminds us of the toughness of Peter and of Peter's God in Acts Acts 5 uh, when Ananias and Sapphira um, get struck down dead. If prophetic ministry is exercised today then, we would expect this to reduce the domestication of God that characterises us as evangelicals and as charismatics. Number seven, a prophet intercedes with boldness and praises with freedom. Prophets are mediators between God and humanity and they mediate in both directions. We usually think of them as, especially as people who bring God's word to us, but they also bring our words to God. And both capacities of theirs emerge from their being, from their being members of God's cabinet. They listen to the deliberations of the cabinet uh, in order to share the results of the del- these deliberations with the human beings who will be affected by them. But that also gives them the, the opportunity to take part in the discussions in the cabinet in order to persuade it to come to a different decision. And that's what you see in stories um, of somebody like Amos uh, in Amos chapter 7 and 8. Both activities, the preaching and the prayer, have the same aim, which is to make it possible for God's positive purpose to be fulfilled and for God's threats to be abandoned. Prophets preach, they also pray. And they have to do that because that too emerges from membership of God's cabinet. A person who hears that there's trouble coming on the people of God can hardly simply accept that. A person who hears that has got to beseech Yahweh to have mercy, surely. At least that's the instinct of a prophet like Amos. The first reference to anybody being a prophet in the Bible is with reference to Abraham in Genesis chapter 20. And, And Abraham is called a prophet because he's an intercessor. Prophets are mediators between heaven and earth. They bring, human, uh, they bring human beings a word from God that they couldn't have attained by ordinary means. And they take words from human beings to God that would not otherwise reach God. Of course, there's no guarantee that God will acquiesce in the urgings of a prophet, as Amos also makes clear. Because God accepts Amos' first two prayers, but he refuses his second two. There are times when God says, enough, and refuses to relent. Jeremiah and Hosea had the same experience. But of course, that doesn't mean that when you're a prophet, that you have to take no for an answer. The prayers of a prophet correspond to one of the three main ways of speaking to God that appear in the Psalms. They correspond to the laments or protests that correspond to what we call supplication for ourselves or intercession for other people. Praying in in the manner of a lament uh, is not the only way in which a prophet speaks to God on behalf of the people. The Psalms' other two ways of speaking to God are uh, are, are praise uh, 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 in in the form of hymns and praise in the form of thanksgivings. Hymns are praising God for the great for who God is and for the great things that God has done in His people's history. Thanksgiving, thanksgivings are praising God for what He's just done for you. After Abraham, Scripture's second prophet is Miriam, and she acts as a prophet in joining Moses in leading people in praise and dancing after the deliverance of the Red Sea. The greatest of the judges, Deborah, is also a prophet. And she takes the lead over Barak in praise for what Yahweh has done in delivering the people as she takes the lead in making that victory happen. 
So she's involved in thanksgiving as Miriam is involved in praise. And then the opening of the story of the monarchy includes the thanksgiving of Hannah, who praises God like a prophet when she speaks of what God is doing and when she speaks about God's anointed, the king whom her son will anoint. So if there are prophets in our midst, they will give themselves in prayer, urging God not to bring calamity on the church. They'll pray not once, but twice, as often as they have a sense that God plans such trouble for the church, until God forbids them to pray. And even then, they may wonder whether God is simply testing them, and they may not give up. And they'll lead us in praise and dance that speaks powerfully of the nature of God as the church's powerful and generous king and deliverer and celebrates the great things God has done for us. Number eight, a prophet is somebody who ministers in a way that reflects his or her personality and time. Because there's a paradox about prophecy. Of all inspired scripture, um, along with the revelation to Moses, it is prophecy that the Old Testament describes most supernaturally, most transcendently, as words that come direct from God. Prophets receive God's dictation. They hear God speak. They pass, they pass on God's actual words. Or God's words are put in their mouth, it sometimes says. Or God speaks by means of them. Uh, and when the Old Testament uses that phrase, it's literally, God speaks by their hand. The paradox is, that it's the individual humanness of the prophets that also comes out in their prophecy. There's little mistaking the words of Jeremiah for the words of Isaiah or the words of Ezekiel or, the word, or, or, or mistaking the words of Ezekiel for the words of 2nd Isaiah. How they speak and what they say reflects who they are. God uses them as the people they are to bring the message they can bring. There was a guy uh, in the seminary where I used to teach in England uh, who used to prophesy sometimes in college worship and it would always be something angry and negative. And when, you, when he wasn't in chapel, he was somebody who was angry and negative. <laughs> and it was tempting, therefore, to say, uh, in fact, I gave in to the temptation to say it. Ah, he would say that. When we hear an alleged prophetic word today, if we know the person, we may be tempted to comment. That's just what I would expect him or her to say. And we may be right that they say what we would expect them to say. But that in itself doesn't raise questions about whether God is speaking through them. Prophecy always comes through the human personality. It doesn't bypass the personality. Then number nine. A prophet is almost certain to fail one way or another. Again, somebody in their posting said, well, okay, if prophets always fail... Why does God bother to send prophets? Well, why does God bother to do anything? Because when has, God, when has anything that God did succeeded? <laughs> but God ever lives in hope. Uh, or ever lives in commitment. That God knows that his purpose for the world and for the church is going to be achieved. And God never... Uh, the, the, no matter how much failure God experiences, God never gives up. Isn't that fabulous? Amen. Prophets are not infallible. Uh, they make mistakes. 
Three of the notable mistake makers are Elijah and Hananiah and Jeremiah. Elijah makes one mistake uh, and runs off and God meets him where he is and coaxes him back. As far as we know, Hananiah's entire prophetic ministry was a mistake. Everything he said was scriptural, but he didn't know what time it was. He was preaching from the wrong texts in the wrong century. Being scriptural doesn't mean that you're scriptural. Jeremiah went through a number of crises in his relationship with God and found himself rebuked and offered restoration on at least that one spectacular occasion that's recorded in Jeremiah 15. If we exercise a prophetic ministry, we need to be wary of thinking that we've become infallible. There's another sense in which prophets fail. They, make no, they may make no mistakes, but they may not succeed in achieving the aim that God set before them. In this sense, this is the sense in which, by and, all, by and large, the great prophets all seem to have been failures. Amos and Hosea failed to lead the slide of Ephraim that hit the bottom with the fall of Samaria. Isaiah and Micah failed to halt the slide of the southern kingdom that reached new depths of apostasy in the time of Manasseh. Huldah and Jeremiah failed to halt the further slide that led to the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel and 2nd Isaiah failed to get the exilic community to look at their situation through Yahweh's eyes and to hope and prepare for the restoration of the community. Maybe 3rd Isaiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi were the nearest to being successors as the second temple community after the exile does seem to have lived with the Torah written to its heart to a much greater extent than the first temple community. Ironically, the very greatest of the prophetic successes was Jonah, but he only succeeded with foreigners and only in a parable. If I were a prophet then, what would be the point of declaring things in God's name? If prophets nearly always fail, what's the point of prophecy? Well, it indicates that point, to put it in slightly different words, the point I made just now. The phenomenon of prophecy indicates that God stays ever hopeful of a response from the people. God didn't cast Israel off, and he hasn't cast the church off. Even if God did cast off whole generations of Israel, and as God has, as God has cast off whole generations or parts of the church. God kept speaking to it, ever hopeful that this time there might be a response. The fact that Israel and the church haven't heeded prophets in the past doesn't close off the possibility that this time things might be different. And then another reason why God um, carried on sending prophets, I think, part of the point of it, point of it is that the phenomenon of prophecy has been far more important for other people in other times than for the people whom the prophecy directly addressed. Only a few people heard the actual words of 1st Isaiah or 2nd Isaiah or 3rd Isaiah. And of the people who did hear those words, even fewer heeded them. But since their day, countless millions have heard them. And some have heeded them. 
if the church in Southern California dies, it's possible that the church in the two-thirds world might be able to learn from its story. With failure usually goes suffering. Prophets not only tend to fail to persuade their people to believe in them, the people of God tend to persecute them for bringing their offensive message, as Jesus says uh, in his um, blessing uh, with regard to persecution. And that pattern uh, appears particularly clearly in Jeremiah and in 2nd Isaiah. And solemnly, as I tried to say on Monday, 2nd Isaiah tells us about realising that the persecution that comes from the people of God, perhaps from the Babylonians too, actually becomes God's means of ministering to them. That vision of the ultimate servant ministry in Isaiah 53 reflects the prophet's own experience of being misunderstood and devalued and persecuted. But evidently, I suggested to you, the prophet had come to see that identification with people in their suffering for their sins and that willingness to suffer even though you'd done nothing to deserve it was something that God could use. It could bring people to their senses and enable them to perceive that they'd been seeing things wrong. And in accepting that suffering, you could even turn it into an offering to God that could compensate for the failures of your own people and help to put things right with God. I suggested to you that um, while Jesus is the person who supremely fulfills that vision, the New Testament also treats Isaiah 53 as a pattern by which the followers of Jesus will live. Prophets will especially live by it. The very factors that cause God uh, to send prophets, like people's resistance to listening to God's word by more regular ways, such as the exposition of scripture, are also the factors that are likely to mean that prophets get rejected and persecuted. But then, like second Isaiah and the servant in Isaiah 53, they will therefore have the opportunity to make their handling of this experience a means of God reaching their people through their lives and their silence, even when they haven't been able to reach them with their words. And they'll have the opportunity to make their accepting of rejection and persecution an offering to God that helps to compensate for their people's resistance to God. Which maybe is the kind of thing that Paul has in mind at the end of Colossians 1 when he talks about making up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Only a fool would want to be a prophet. A wise person would run away from God's summons, as Jonah did. But the person who fails to escape becomes a blessing and finds great fruitfulness. Uh, Okay, talk to each other for two or three minutes about uh, what, uh, what you think about what is a prophet. Are there particularly key things about it um, that apply to today or are there extra things that you'd want to add or um, whatever, talk to each other for a few minutes about that okay, okay, you're done Um, I, uh, one of you um, uh, unwisely was telling me about a prophecy somebody had given him just before class. So I said, you're going to have to share that with the class. 
So, Dave, go on. All right. <laughs> Um, I don't know where to start. All right, Jim Chapman, the TA for this class, one of the TAs. Um, I guess going back to about a year ago, I had, I had, my wife and I had our first son, our only child, and um, I was going through school, and we were, my wife's still working full time, and I was working part time for our church, and going to school full time, trying to finish. It was really hectic. And this is just background. Jim came to me last January. We've known each other for a few years. For two, three years here at the building. And um, Jim told me that he could tell I was having a hard time balancing school and everything. And he said, uh, I think that the church is called to be family to one another. And so I'm going to come babysit your kid two days a week, two hours a day, for free while you do homework. As just trying to be a brother to me. And he did that for like six or eight months. And um, over the course of time, I had, we had talked a little bit about um, how I had felt like the Lord might be leading me towards another degree someday in the future. And that I had always doubted because I didn't think that I could pull it off. I didn't think I had really took through another degree. I wasn't very confident. And over the course of our conversations over a few months, he would tell me, you know, I think, I think you could probably do another degree someday down the road if you wanted to. And I was just like, I think you got the wrong person. Like, I, it was something I wasn't buying into at all. Um, this, I, this idea of another degree I was wrestling with. And um, on the night before Jim left to go to Duke, Jim's a really smart guy, by the way. And uh, before he went to go to Duke, he came to my apartment one night with his wife, Erin, and he said, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to tell you something. And we went for a walk around the block, and he started, he was crying, and he said, Aaron and I have been praying for you and, your, and Maria, my wife, we've been praying for you all afternoon, and I think I have something from God to tell you, and uh, after reading the prophets for two or three weeks, I wasn't, I wasn't really excited. <laughs> but, two things I know about Jim is that he doesn't really... He's very direct with me as, as much as he wants to help me. If I have an idea and I mention, hey, I think, I, I think I'm think i having this idea about move or something, he'll say, I think that's a dumb idea. <laughs> he's pretty straightforward with me. And he, uh, and he doesn't throw around, he doesn't throw around saying God told me this or God told me that very often. So when he said it, I knew that it was, it was serious. And so he said, I feel like God's saying that you need to seriously take this idea of another degree. Seriously, I think you may be calling the Bureau. And if you don't quit, um, I don't care what I said. If you don't quit doubting yourself and having a lack of confidence, you may miss You had a more vivid way of putting it, didn't you? Yeah. Come on, use the vivid way. He, well, he said, you may miss what something God's calling you to do. It's time to put on your big boy pants. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way, that, see, that's a, that shows an authentic prophecy. Yeah, yeah, go on. So after I told him to shut up, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, it really jarred me. I went on all my life, and now I'm actually having to really, well, I'm, I have to consider what he said, because, like, there's nobody else who could, could have come to me at the time to be able to help me that, and to be able to actually put it in 
Painful. And yeah, to to um to get told to be told that look, you're not taking God seriously because you're looking to And you need to put you on your big boy pants. That's a bit yeah. painful, isn't it? Yeah, you're, yeah. yeah you're, 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 you're you need to I would say to Georgia, I'm from a small town in Georgia. You need to cowboy up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you need to take what God seriously saying seriously and stop getting your own self perception going into the city. Thanks, Dave. Um, anybody? I'm sorry? Anybody else want to uh, set, contribute, say anything, add anything, ask anything about all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Is that common to have someone says, say, uh, like, the Lord said this or God said this? Like you should, is it okay to speak in those terms? <laughs> That's a bit dangerous from where I, my background. Yeah, it is dangerous, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, have I told you about the first time I ever had a word? I don't think I have, have I? No. I, might, I may have talked about this in another class. Um, the first time I had... Um, I can say with retrospect, uh, a picture, which is what you refer technically to a vision. That's how you talk about vision, because you want to safeguard that point, really. If you say it's a picture, it doesn't sound as impressive as a vision. <laughs> so in, in, the, in the circles that I moved, you talked about pictures, not visions. And you would be inclined to say, as, as Jim did, I think the Lord might be saying, which is safer. Um, I, um, I was involved in ministering to somebody. We, had, we were having a he- healing ministry in the context of a service in, in the seminary. Uh, and and I was praying for a guy. The system was that um, I used to have, um, if, if there was a student wanted to be prayed for, there would be somebody on the faculty that prayed for him and somebody, one of his kind of friends. So I was the faculty person because he was in my a kind of equivalent uh, of small group thing. Um, and as I was praying for this guy, I had this um, picture, this image come into my head of um, of a little boy walking through the uh, kind of mole, really, with uh, holding his father by the hand. And there were some other things to it, but those are the bits I can remember. Um, and, and I thought, I was thinking to myself, if I was the kind of person who had pictures, that would be a picture. But I'm not, so it can't be. Um, so so I'm, 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 same, I'm laying my hands on this guy, I'm praying, there are words coming out of my mouth, I'm also thinking about this picture, and I'm also thinking about thinking about this picture all at the same time. <laughs> and then thinking, um, but, but in case it is a picture, uh, I, I don't actually say, I think I've got this picture, but so what I did was, worked the imagery out of the picture into the prayer that I was praying for the guy. Um, and after the service, the guy came to see me, I think he was in tears, and he said, uh, the, um, the thing that had really been healing for him uh, in the entire thing was that image I'd used <laughs> uh, of, of, of him, and it was something, I think something to do with his father, I can't remember the details now, because it was years ago, but that that was the thing that had ministered to him. Um, and so I found myself saying to myself, oh, it was a picture. I must be the kind of person who sometimes gets a picture. Um, but, but I was hesitant, for, in a way for slightly different reasons from what you're talking about, but it's quite, it's quite proper to be hesitant. Uh, 
On the other hand, and, and the last time, like I think I said to you the other week, uh, this doesn't happen to me in the United States. Um, it only happened to me in England. Um, before we left, there was a new, um, uh, there was a new pastor being um, introduced in the church that, not the church we most recently belonged to, but the church we had belonged to. So we were going to the service, and the bishop, has happened, as happens in our system, was uh, introducing the, the new guy, and the bishop was preaching the sermon. And as the bishop uh, climbed up the pulpit steps, I knew that God, or I thought, that God, uh, the words that came into my head were, the Lord has anointed you. Words from either Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, I've forgotten which now. Taken totally out of context, of course. Uh, And I knew that I had to say those words to the bishop, not at that moment, necessarily, (laughs) but I knew I had to say those words. Um, And I didn't want to do that, partly because he's a bishop, um, and you have to be... And, but I knew that if the Lord was going to get anybody to talk to, to say something like that to the bishop, it would be me, because I'm not on the payroll of the, church, of the church. I'm not under the bishop's authority because I was in the seminary. So I thought, that's typical. Just because I'm the kind of guy who God can use, God is going to go and use me. Um, and so I thought, but I may be just be, um, be misleading, be, be, be mistaken. So we'll go, we're, we're going to, there's a reception afterwards, and... Uh, uh, after a thing like that, so I went to the reception. I was with Anne in her cha- in a wheelchair, and and I thought, okay, if I if I find myself with the bishop, I'll say these words to him, but it probably won't happen. So of course, immediately the bishop makes a beeline for Anne uh, in order to, uh, to 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 speak to her and so on. So I just say to him, uh, the Lord wants me to say to you that the Lord has anointed you. Awesome. That was it. Um, and afterwards, his wife called me. I don't remember. I didn't get any particular reaction from him. But the next day, his wife called me to say uh, how important that had been to him, because he was feeling extremely down and discouraged, um, and that was just what he needed to hear. Now, again, that was something that I was, well, I simultaneously knew it, knew it was something the Lord was involved in, but it was also something I wanted to avoid actually doing. And thought, maybe I'm kidding. Maybe, I'm. And you can never get out of that. That's why I said near the beginning what I said. Having prophets doesn't solve any problems. Because how do you know? And there are no kind of um, litmus tests that suddenly mean, yeah, you've got it right. And so a degree of hesita- hesitation um, about it and maybe a form of hesitation about the way you express it, like I think the, might, the Lord might be saying, um, then that's, that's, that's wise. Um, but we, well, obviously in lots of contexts, the danger is claiming something is the word of the Lord when it ain't. But probably for most of us, the danger is not speaking when actually the Lord has given us something to say. Yes, you see the misuse. Yeah. I see so yeah. many people saying yeah. things in the name of the Lord that are just, in my judgment, horrible. Mm. Mm. So I want to avoid doing that yeah. because I don't want yeah. to be that guy. Yeah. 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 Mm. Okay, a few things about Haggai and Zechariah and whatnot um, to run up to the break. Um, things are rising out the postings. Uh, here are three prophets who, the background is the story I was telling you at the beginning of last time, um, the story of that's told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra 1 to 6, the account of how 
the people in Judah are free to return to Jerusalem uh, to go and rebuild the temple, which occupies Ezra 1 to 6, is the background to Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, and in fact, those chapters in Ezra 1 to 6 tell you uh, about Ezra and about Haggai and Zechariah's involvement in uh, getting these people to, what was the expression again, put their big pants on? Uh, pull their socks up, pull up their, you know, in order to get, get a grip of themselves in order to build this temple. It's, it's uh, uh, in light of their encouragement that it actually, um, that it actually happened. Uh, and then uh, the background of Malachi is, uh, uh, is usually reckoned to be the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, the fact that, that there aren't any more prophets in the Old Testament after Malachi doesn't in itself mean that there were no more prophets after Malachi. Uh, in, in actual fact, Joel is quite often put in that period or later. Uh, and, and various amounts of the stuff that appears, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, um, just to complicate life further, uh, is usually reckoned not actually to come from 1st Isaiah or 2nd or 3rd, but actually come from later, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th Isaiah. Now you think I've given you a hard time with the number of Isaiahs. You, should, you haven't seen, heard the half of it. Um, and likewise, that material, uh, something similar, uh, for instance, with Ezekiel, that Ezekiel's work has quite prob- probably been elaborated by his disciples, people who've seen how the Word of God applied in the later context um, and the Word of God that appears in Ezekiel. So the mere fact that Malachi is the last prophetic book in the Old Testament doesn't mean that Malachi's words were the last prophetic words ever spoken. Um, and perhaps that's a point at which one might drag in Daniel again, uh, that, that Daniel is exercising in various senses a sort of prophetic ministry, um, and, uh, and that's um, part of the background of the ministry that's being exercised in, Dan- in the book of Daniel, related to the circumstances of the community in the second century in the great crisis involving Antiochus Epiphanes. And you can see thus in the book of Daniel a prophetic ministry being exercised in the second century. So uh, you, there isn't really reason to reckon uh, the Qumran guys, they had sort of prophetic um, things going on. There isn't really reason to reckon that, that the prophetic voice had been silenced from Malachi to John the Baptist, which is... Uh, an inference is easy to make from the kind of structure of the Bible when Malachi goes straight into Matthew. The background of Haggai and Zechariah then appeared at the end of the 6th century, the return of Judeans to, uh, to Jerusalem, the background of Malachi, another 70 or whatever uh, years later on. Um, why are there these three, somebody wanted to know, why are these, th- these three collections of material, third Isaiah and Haggai and Zechariah, at the same time, saying different things. Well, because usually different things need to be said. Um, and in particular, um, well, well, two issues you can see surfacing in the differences between these three. Uh, one is one that I mentioned last time uh, in, in saying that within Isaiah 56-66, the key emphases are trust and obey. They are the promises of God and the challenges of God to obedience. And that actually is also the difference between Haggai and Zechariah. Because Haggai is a guy who comes along with, as it were, the big stick, telling people to get, get their act together, get a grip. Zechariah is the guy who comes along and, and promises them what God is going to do. Uh, they're both involved in ministry at the same time. They say different sorts of things because both things need to be said. The people need 
to um, live in commitment, to, to re-express their commitment to Yahweh, Haggai, the people need to believe that God is going to bring his work to fruition, um, Zechariah. I'll come back to that a bit in a minute, but another tension I can think of is, is over whether it's a good idea to build a temple at all. Um, one or two of you, several of you, were surprised that Haggai, um, that, there's the, about, that God is now enthusiastic about the building of the temple because the last time you heard about God's opinions of temples, it was pretty low. Haggai didn't, uh, God didn't want the temple built in David's day. Now God wants the temple built. What's going on here? Um, and uh, what the sort of uh, one way of putting it is, so well, when the temple is people's idea because they think, think they can get a control of God, you can see why God uh, would be against it. When the people are thinking, we don't want to bother to build, to build God's temple because we'd rather look after our own houses, thank you very much, you can see why God would be enthusiastic about building a temple. Um, the, uh, the thing which, the, the same thing can be an expression of uh, disobedience and going against God, but also an expression uh, of obedience, commitment to God in different contexts. Uh, and you can see how also, uh, as the accounts of the temple building in Samuel Kings, as well as in Third Isaiah show, um, the temple can be a great idea because it's a place that can honour God and a place where God can come and meet with you. But it's also a stupid idea because how can you possibly have a place where God could be contained? And you can see these prophets after the exile expressing both those convictions because both are true. As it were, God says, except that God doesn't. Sorry, it's complicated. Um, The two leaders in this period after the exile, um, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, puzzled people. They are also the two guys that get talked about uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, they are significant because Joshua, Jeshua um, is, uh, is the high priest or is the guy who would be the high priest if there was one. And Zerubbabel um, is the Davidic prince, the guy who would be the king, the would, be, would be the Davidic king if there was one. Uh, and, and so... Uh, somebody commented rather um, astutely, you'd have thought that God, well, we thought that God had got fed up with the idea of kings. Uh, why would God be wathering about a king again? Um, but, that, but the other side to that is that God had made that promise about the Davidic line. There'll never a lamp fail for David in Jerusalem. The end of two kings, uh, the note of promise is when the Davidic, the person who would be the Davidic king is released from jail in Babylon. And so when it's possible for there to be the guy who would be the Davidic king, if there was a Davidic king, to be the leader of the community uh, immediately after the exile, wow! If that's not um, an indication of God being faithful to his promises, what would be? Um, but it's also significant that, that alongside Zerubbabel in this picture um, is Joshua. Um, somebody wondered what about, the, about links and parallels between this Joshua, this Joshua, Joshua, and the Joshua, Joshua back in Joshua. Um, I don't think there's any, I think they just happen to have the same name. Or rather, they've got a very meaningful name because it's a name that means. Joshua. Yes, God saves. Who else was called Joshua? Thank you. Right, okay. So, uh, what a coincidence. Well, except not, because you can see why. If you are going to associate, attach hopes to your child, attach, give, give your child a significant name, then to call your, to call your child, Yahweh saves, God saves, God is our saviour, um, in different contexts, you could see why. Um, 
But Josh, Joshua is the high priest, uh, the, uh, and the collocation, the putting together of the priestly figure and the kingly figure, um, in, particularly in Zechariah, is significant because there's, there's much more of a kind of co-regency between these characters uh, envisaged by Zechariah um, than would have been thought of before the exile, where the story is told in terms of the king being the key guy. You know there's priests, but the king is the guy in terms of whom the story is told. Um, putting the king and the high priest alongside each other uh, introduces a healthy kind of uh, separation of powers and yet collocation of powers into the community after the exile. So it's significant that Zechariah is doing that. It's significant both the emphasis on Zerubbabel and the emphasis on Joshua. And the crowning of Joshua may be uh, points towards the need to give the high priest this quasi-royal uh, position alongside the, uh, the, the, the prince, the Davidic, the Davidic um, character. Um, Joshua's problem is that he's tainted by exile. Uh, and so the story of Joshua needing to be given clean clothes is God saying, okay, yeah, jo- I don't deny that Joshua is tainted by having been in exile. Um, but I'm cleaning, I'm cleaning him up, I'm cleansing him, I'm purifying him, I'm making him new, and so you can accept him. And behind that, we probably have some uh, indication of the kind of tension there would be in the community uh, in Jerusalem, where there are peop- those people who were left behind, who never had to go into exile, who view the people in it who went into exile as impure, just as the people who were in exile view the people who were left behind as impure. Who's the, who's the good figs and who's the bad figs? Well, it's what you call the other, you know, both... Community, both halves of the community can easily have a low opinion of the other. Uh, and uh, you can see that in the view of people in, who've stayed in Jerusalem, that this alleged high priest um, is tainted by exile, and Zechariah's uh, vision is thus about his being uh, reinstated, not denying that he is tainted, but pointing out that God can be forgiving and God can be restoring. Um, Where's the ark? That was a good question somebody asked. Uh, nobody knows the answer to the question except, uh, what's his name? Um, yeah, Indiana Jones, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the, the ark disappeared with the, in the, with the fall of Jerusalem in 587. Uh, uh, at least presumably. It doesn't actually say anything about it there, I don't think. But the presumption would be that the destruction of Jerusalem would mean the destruction of the ark. Um, and the net, there just never was another one. Uh, and so when they, rebuilt, when they rebuilt the temple, um, it wouldn't have an ark. Yeah? So what would that mean then on Yom Kippur? What were they attaching God's sprinkled blood on then? Uh, I don't know, I'm afraid. Um, so I often wonder if like, you know, the crucifixion scene is just prophet being part of the ark, so that to reveal to the power emptying the whole prophet that become, and saying, we're going behind hmm. I just don't know the answers to those questions. I don't think anybody does. Um, there is an article on what, what, what happened to the Ark by a guy called John Day uh, in a book about the history of the temple um, that's edited by John Day. Um, and he surveys the various theories, but I think ends up with, we don't know. <laughs> that's scholarship. Sorry? 
Oh, of course, yeah, it's in Ethiopia. I forgot. Yes. Ethiopia say the art is now in Ethiopia. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Ethiopia, if you ask anybody, where's the art? It is here. Right. And even no guards, somebody sitting in front, um, sitting on a gate. Right. And saying, it's here. Right. So how do you think? Is that true? <laughs> uh, I doubt it. But um. Ha- well, 